Hello, everybody. This is Hub, and I'm here to welcome you to a very special episode of Titan Up the Defense. Eagle-brained listeners will remember that my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, has sealed himself off in an unpopulated dimension filled only with electrical crackles and stalagmites. He's worried that if he doesn't repress his every emotion, then his father will take over his body and... Well, seeing as his father was raised in New England in the 50s, probably do a better job of repressing his every emotion. Hmm. I should probably figure out a way to get in touch with Corey and tell him it's okay if he comes home. But, in the meantime, I thought I'd take advantage of this opportunity to bring you a very special episode. You see, now that we're all alone, listeners, I thought this would be the perfect time to discuss a couple of defenders who do their best work after hours. That's right, it's the inaugural episode of Defenders After Dark. where we take a closer look at the first appearances of a few of the defenders who tend to work under cover of darkness. See, a few issues ago, we saw Moon Knight teaming up with Nighthawk. And seeing these two billowy, cloaked, wealthy former villains who get stronger at night pal around together made me think it might be fun to analyze these two heroes' humble beginnings and see which one comes out on top. So let's dive brain-first into the murky depths of my comic book collection and get this episode of Defenders After Dark. Underway, shall we? The first issue we're going to look at is Werewolf by Night, number 32, August 1975. The Stalker called Moon Knight. Written by Doug Monk, drotted by Don Perlin, inked by Howie Perlin, lettered by Ray Holloway, colored by Phil Rachelson, and edited by Len Wein. Defender After Dark Debuting Moon Knight The book's titular character is a dude named Jack Russell. When he turned 18, he started growing fur where there was no fur, and became an out-of-control monster. Well, 18's a little late to start going through puberty, but there are probably some terrible film strips he could watch that could help guide him through this difficult transition. Or, there would be, if it weren't for the fact that this super-puberty that has afflicted Jack seems only to happen when there's a full moon. And also... He's a werewolf, hence the book's title. Turns out that Jack's dad got cursed by a magic book, and when Jack became a legal adult, the curse was passed on to him. What a ripoff. I bet that's embarrassing at the werewolf get-togethers. So how did you receive the lichen's dark curse, defending a young lady from a wolf attack in the moors of Scotland? No, my dad's an irresponsible bibliophile. Bummer. But let's back up a second and bask in the beautiful comic book nonsense that is a werewolf whose alter ego is Jack Russell. That is some good shit right there. I wonder what the backup choices were. Dobie Pincher? Herman Shepard? Gordon Retriever? Marv Wolfman? Anyway, as our story begins, it must be a full moon because Jack is all wolfed up and some masked dude dressed in all white and silver is just beating the shit out of him. The werewolf is usually a pretty tough customer, but this conspicuously clad stranger has spiked silver gauntlets and silver-toed boots and silver truncheons and silver crescent darts. Being exposed to silver causes werewolves intense pain, so the fact that this dude is decked out in more silver jewelry than the crowd outside a Sisters of Mercy concert is particularly bad news for Jack. As he is assaulted by the anonymous Argent agent, the werewolf thinks back to how he got into this predicament. 
Last night, Jack and his buddy Buck had been headed to a ski resort when they got stuck in a blizzard. Jack wolfed out and tried to murder a seven-year-old girl named Buttons that I guess they had been traveling with. Buck intervened, but got himself pretty severely savaged in the process. A few hours later, Jack woke up in a snowdrift with no recollection of what had transpired, which is kind of how the whole werewolf deal works. He hitchhiked to his stepdad Phil's house in nearby Westwood, where he learned that Buttons was okay, but Buck was in the hospital being treated for some potentially fatal wounds. Overwhelmed with grief and remorse, Jack rushed to the hospital to check on his friend. Shitty. I bet Jack wishes that just once, his wolfen escapades would consist of chugging beers, riding on top of vans, and slam-dunking basketballs. Maybe next time. When Jack arrived at the hospital, he was greeted by his sister Lissa and his girlfriend Topaz, who informed him that Buck was in a coma, and they weren't sure he'd ever wake up. Hmm, I'm pretty sure everyone wakes up from comic book comas. There's like a 75% chance that once he does wake up, he'll be evil or possessed or have superpowers, but there's like a 100% chance he'll wake up. Apparently, Jack isn't as familiar with the narrative conventions of the Marvel Universe as I am, because he was pretty convinced that his buddy was going to die, and that it was his fault. In a fit of guilt and frustration, the penitent protagonist punched a wall and broke his hand. After bidding a sullen sayonara to Topaz and Lissa, Jack headed back to his stepdad's house. But when he opened the door, the unlucky lycanthrope was greeted, not by Phil Russell, but by the masked stranger from the beginning of the book. The stranger introduced himself as Moon Knight, duh, and started filling the Russells in on what brought him here. Ooh, a flashback within a flashback. Moon Knight was a mercenary named Mark Spector, who was hired by a sinister syndicate known only as The Committee, which Jack had run afoul of in the past. The committee knew how good at fighting Mark was, so they gave him this special outfit, told him to call himself Moon Knight, and paid him $10,000 to beat up Jack and deliver him to their clutches. Huh. Not much of a secret origin. Some bad guys gave him a costume, told him to put it on, and gave him a code name. Also, telling the guy you're hunting what your real name is kind of defeats the purpose of having a code name in the first place. When Moon Knight finished his exposition, Phil tackled him and told his stepson to skedaddle. Jack hesitated, but there was a full moon that night, and he felt himself starting to get all wolfy, so he decided to run away after all, so as not to endanger his stepdad. Moon Knight gave chase, and eventually caught up to Jack in an alleyway after the transformation had completed. Which more or less brings us up to the beginning of the comic. As the werewolf is getting the shit beaten out of him in an alleyway, Moon Knight's helicopter pilot, a French guy named Frenchie, hooray, breaks into Lissa's apartment and kidnaps her and Topaz at gunpoint. Well, now I feel kind of bad about giving him a hooray. Bad Frenchie. Back in the alley, the tide of the battle begins to turn as the enraged lycanthrope fights through the pain, both of the exposure to silver and his previously injured hand, to deliver a stunning blow to his lunar adversary. The ferocity of the strike leaves both combatants incapacitated, but then Moon Knight gets up and bonks the werewolf on the head with one of his silver sticks. Then he bonks him again for good measure, and drags the unconscious monster to the helicopter, where Frenchie and the kidnapped ladies await them. And there you have the debut of Moon Knight. Overall, this was a pretty neat comic. I haven't read a ton of Werewolf by Night, but I've read a few issues, and one of the things that it consistently does really well that is hard to do in a comic book is first-person narration. Doug Monk has a real touch for that, and it ends up giving the book kind of like a neo-film noir touch, which I really appreciate. I also liked the art in this. It's drawn by Don Perlin, who is an illustrator who worked pretty consistently from the 40s through the early 90s and has a pretty significant run on the Defenders that we'll get to in a couple years probably at the rate we're going. 
It was inked by someone named Howie Perlin, who I assume is related to Don Perlin in some way, otherwise it's a heck of a coincidence, but I wasn't really able to find that much out about Howie. As near as I can tell, the only comics he's credited with are issues 32 and 33 of Werewolf by Night. And while the inks didn't stand out as particularly strong, they also didn't detract from the artwork and overall seemed pretty competent. So I'd be curious as to why this was the only work he did, but I don't know. The titular werewolf by night in this issue and his alter ego, Jack Russell, don't really make for the most compelling protagonist. Like I said, the first person narration helps with that, but Jack seems kind of whiny and petulant. I mean, he's at least aware that he's acting that way, but still it's a little bit off-putting. And the fact that the werewolf tried to kill a seven-year-old makes it a little bit tough to root for the guy. But like I said, I haven't read a ton of this. I'm curious as to how they managed to pull off having that be their main character. So overall, pretty neat book. As for Moon Knight, I've always loved Moon Knight and was super stoked to find a copy of this book that was beat up enough that I could afford it. My first exposure to the character was the Marvel trading cards that I got when I was in middle school, and he was instantly one of my favorite characters, and I started tracking down some of his stuff. The Doug Monk, Bill Sienkiewicz regular series that came out in the early 80s is legit amazing, and if you haven't read it, you should totally check that out. Now, how does this Moon Knight jibe with that Moon Knight? Eh, some of the pieces are in place right from the beginning. He's Mark Spector. He's a former mercenary. He's tough and good at kicks and punches. But other than that, the origin gets pretty heavily retconned. I mean, in this, basically, a bunch of rich dudes gave him a suit and said, Hey, you're Moon Knight now. And so he was. Later on, his backstory gets changed to he was fighting as a mercenary in Egypt and got betrayed by his fellow mercenaries and left for dead and maybe was dead, but he woke up inside a pyramid and got brought back to life by the Egyptian god Khonshu, who was the god of the moon and vengeance. And so he dressed up in the outfit that he found in the pyramid, and now he gets strong at night and thinks that Khonshu is neat and fights crime. So kind of like Paul from the Bible, except for with an ancient Egyptian god of the moon and vengeance instead of Jesus. So I think that version of his origin is probably objectively a little bit more compelling than he was handed a suit by some rich guys. But I'm pretty sure both stories do have the same writer. So maybe there's some continuity between them that I don't understand. It is nice that Frenchie was with him right from the beginning. That's pretty cool. I like Frenchie. One of the other fun things about the character Moon Knight is that not only does he have an alter ego, but he created a bunch of alter egos for himself. He came into a ton of money at some point, and so one of his alter egos is a super rich guy named Stephen Grant. One of them is the mercenary or former mercenary Mark Spector, and one of them is a cab driver named Jake. And one of the interesting twists that the comic book does is it has him immerse himself in these alter egos enough that it borders on having multiple personalities, and he has to struggle with that. And it's kind of fun. Anyway, that was the first appearance of Moon Knight, our first Defender After Dark. Now let's take a look at the premiere of our other billowy caped rich guy who gets strong at night. Avengers number 70, November 1969. When Strikes the Squadron Sinister. Written by Roy Thomas, drotted by Sal Buscema, inked by Sam Granger, lettered by Sam Rosen, and edited by Stan Lee. Defender. After Dark Debuting Nighthawk Sort of. See, Nighthawk technically first appeared in the previous issue, number 69. Nice. But 
he and the rest of the Squadron Sinister were only in one panel on the last page, so I didn't think it was worth recapping the whole issue just for that. But, just so you don't feel like you missed out on anything, he did have one line of dialogue in that issue. He shook his fist and said, Those who speak of me in the dead of night call me Nighthawk. Sadly, he didn't continue on to inform us what those who speak of him in the early afternoon call him. But presumably it's just Kyle. So, in that issue, number 69, nice, of the Avengers, the Avengers bumped into their old enemy, the time-traveling warlord King the Conqueror. Kang is a continuity kerfuffle of a character who at one time and or another has been believed to be like 50 different guys, including but not limited to Mr. Fantastic's dad, Mr. Fantastic's descendant, Dr. Doom's descendant, Dr. Doom, Iron Man's descendant, Iron Man, Iron Lad, an ancient Egyptian pharaoh, an ancient Egyptian pharaoh from the future, and a guy named Fred. Also, possibly Rue's mom from the house at Pooh Corner, but I can't confirm that one. Whoever he may or may not be this time, King is a real piece of shit. So when he beamed the Avengers to the future, they were all like, fuck this guy, let's beat him up. They started to do that, but their temporal tour guide told them to knock it off, because he needed their help. Turned out, King had made a bet with that big blue omnipotent gambling aficionado, the Grandmaster. Remember him? He was in Giant Size Defenders number 3, and Jeff Goldblum played him in a movie. Kang wagered that he could get a bunch of guys together that could beat up whatever bunch of guys the Grandmaster got together. If Kang won, the Grandmaster would bring Kang's dead girlfriend Ravona back to life. But if the Grandmaster won, then he was going to make it so that the Earth either blew up or never existed or something. For his champions, Kang chose the Avengers. The Grandmaster used his powers to retcon a group of super-villainous rip-offs of the Justice League into existence, which he called the Squadron Sinister. He chose them to be his proxies in combat. So that brings us more or less up to speed. Kang is nervous about the upcoming contest, so he knocks his fancy dinner on the floor and yells at his waitstaff. What a jerk. I bet he's not Rue's mom after all. The tempestuous Time Lord heads to his throne room and gives his guests, the Avengers, a version of the recap that I just gave you guys. Then the Grandmaster shows up. King has some snipers try to assassinate the big blue jerk, but the Grandmaster can tell that they're there and uses his mind to make them explode. Whoops. King begrudgingly apologizes, and the contest is underway. The chronologically inconstant Conqueror sends Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, and Goliath back to their own time, where they will face off in individual contests against the members of the Squadron Sinister. After our harried heroes land their time jet or whatever back in the 20th century, they take a minute to regroup. But before they are able to formulate much of a game plan, a hologram of their recently retconned into existence criminal counterparts appears in the sky in front of them. Let's take a minute to meet the Squadron Sinister. Dr. Spectrum is an evil Green Lantern ripoff. Instead of a magic ring, he has a sentient power prism, which protects him and enables him to fly and create physical projections of whatever he can imagine. He dresses in what looks like a cross-colors bodysuit. He's also a real asshole. Hi, Dr. Spectrum. Hyperion is an evil Superman ripoff. He's strong and can fly and shoot heat beams out of his eyeballs. He has an atom symbol on his chest and wears what looks like a riveted golden diaper. He is also a real asshole, but I still like him better than the Hyperion from the Teen Titans. Hi, Hyperion. The Wizard is... <coughs> the Wizard is an evil ripoff of the Flash. He can run real fast, but more importantly, decided to wear a uniform that is predominantly yellow and call himself the Wizard. What's amazing is, he isn't even the first person to do that. He's also a real asshole. Hi, the Wizard. And our final villain is, of course, Nighthawk. Nighthawk is an evil Batman ripoff. He's good at kicking and punching and jumping, 
but mostly he is good at being very dramatic and very wealthy. He has a cowl that has a ridiculous bird beak that comes over his nose and a big billowing cape. He is, of course, also a real asshole. Hi, Nighthawk. And on the other side of the contest, let's meet our heroes. Captain America is Captain America. Look, I'm not going to pretend you guys don't know who Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man are. But in case you aren't familiar with Goliath, he has the same powers as Giant Man, which is to say that he can grow real big. His alter ego, though, is where things get a little interesting. You see, he's Clint Barton. If that name sounds familiar to you, that might be because Clint Barton is better known as Hawkeye. Yeah, that Hawkeye. You see, one time some bad guys needed fighting. Only Clint broke his bow, and without a pointy stick launcher, he was pretty much useless in a fight. So the arrogant archer swiped some of Hank Pym's get-real-big juice and used it to, well, get real big. The belligerent bowman decided that he kind of liked being huge, so he kept at it for like 30 or so issues and went by the codename Goliath, which had been one of the superhero names that Hank Pym had used previously, but to be fair, what wasn't? I mean, he never did get around to using my suggestion of Inspector Insector, but that really wouldn't apply to a guy who gets real big. Anyway, the big holographic bad guys in the sky introduce themselves and announce that each villain will meet one respective hero at a different international monument. They will fight. If the bad guy wins, then the Earth goes goodbye. If the heroes win, then it doesn't. The squadron goes on to make a point of stating that they are all human men from Earth, which seems a little odd. Not stating that they're human men from Earth. That's perfectly reasonable. I do it all the time. Because I'm definitely a human man from Earth. It's just that if they are in fact human men from Earth, like me, then it seems a little bit weird that they're cool with the planet blinking out of existence. I mean, where will they put all their stuff? The heroes rush off to confront the various squadron sinister members. Captain America goes to the Statue of Liberty. Cap stares at the landmark and thinks about what a nice statue it is. His thoughts about Lady Liberty seem to almost border on the erotic. I guess that guy really loves his country. The star-spangled superhero is startled from his statue staring by the sudden arrival of Nighthawk who sneaks up and tosses a lasso around Cap's legs and swings him headfirst into the brick base of the symbolically significant sculpture. The concussed crime fighter loses consciousness. When he awakens, the Sentinel of Liberty finds himself aboard Nighthawk's hawk-shaped plane. The affluent avian aficionado explains to his captive audience that the Grandmaster retrofitted him with some pretty sweet nighttime powers that augmented his already formidable athletic ability. He also goes ahead and tells Cap his secret identity. Damn it, Kyle! Why the fuck do we even have a mask? Our patriotic protagonist makes like he's going to attack his captor, but Kyle is like, Hey, look outside a minute. When Captain America does so, he sees that Kyle has hooked the Statue of Liberty up to a harness and is currently hoisting the massive monument high above the earth. The bird-beaked billionaire threatens that if Cap does not behave himself, he will release the cable and allow the former inhabitant of Liberty Island to plummet to the ground. Despite, or perhaps because of, this threat, Captain America does not behave himself. He attacks his nocturnal nemesis. And Nighthawk kicks his ass. Wow. Didn't see that one coming. Eventually, Kyle tires of his patriotic pugilism partner and decides to blow him up with an explosive pellet from his utility belt. Cap pulls up his shield at the last minute, and the concussive force of the blast is reflected at Nighthawk, who is knocked out. It's Avengers 1, Squadron Sinister, 0. Half a world away, outside the Taj Mahal, Iron Man approaches the impressive edifice and prepares to face the prismatic power of Dr. Spectrum. Doc Spectrum uses his nonsense abilities to blast the armored Avenger from the sky, and then prepares to pulverize him with a projection of a giant hammer. Much to Spectrum's dismay, Iron Man manages to duck out of the way at the last minute. He retaliates by firing his repulsor rays, but the beams have no effect on the colorful Crumbum, who brags that his polychromatic shield 
will protect him from all harm. Big mistake, Spectrum. When Tony Stark hears the nonsense science word, that is all the prompting he needs to do some nonsense science of his own. Iron Man zaps the light-refracting reprobate and his crystalline companion with a beam of ultraviolet light, which instantly renders both the power prism and its wielder completely helpless. Because obviously that's the influence that an ultraviolet ray would have on a polychromatic shield. Duh. The score is now Avengers 2, Squadron Sinister, 0. In Egypt, at the Pyramids of Giza, Thor confronts Hyperion. The two strapping super beings start punching it up. As the titans tussle, the arrogant overmuscled jerk, the one with the atom on his chest, explains his origin. Remember how a few pages ago, the squadron made a big point of announcing apropos of nothing that they were all Earthmen from Earth? Well, Hyperion isn't. Or at least he sort of isn't. Hyperion is from one of those planets that is theorized about whenever college freshmen sit around and get high. He is from a world that existed within a single atom on our world. And unfortunately for Hyperion, that atom happened to be the first atom that was split by nuclear scientists, which destroyed his planet and everyone he ever cared about. Whoops! Hyperion was the sole survivor of the blast, and somehow managed to absorb all of the atomic energy that the destruction of his planet released. He floated around subatomic space for a while, until Grandmaster bigged him up and gave him a metal diaper, and told him that if he beat up Thor, then the planet that destroyed his planet would in turn be destroyed. That sounded like a pretty good deal to Hyperion, so here we are. When Thor hears his opponent's tale of woe, he replies, I say thee shut up, and throws his hammer at his atomic adversary. The two keep fighting until Thor remembers that this comic came out in the 60s, so his hammer can do all kinds of weird magic nonsense. He throws Mjolnir at his enemy, and the puissant projectile encircles its target, forming a tornado of implausibility that removes Hyperion's powers, shrinks him down to the size of an apple, and seals him in a glass sphere. Hooray! That is some grade A Silver Age comic book nonsense, and I am here for it. Avengers 3, Squadron Sinister, 0. So I guess that means no matter what happens in the final fight, the Avengers are going to win, right? I mean, Goliath would somehow have to lose three fights simultaneously in order to fuck things up for the good guys, and not even the man formerly known as Hawkeye can be that big a screw-up, can he? Well, not without help he can't, but here comes the fuck-up cavalry. Because as Goliath approaches Big Ben to battle <coughs> the wizard, the Brogdignation braggart is intercepted by the unexpected arrival of the Black Knight. Well, shit. Last time we saw that asshole was in The Defenders, when he decided he wanted to live in the 12th century so he could go fight in the Crusades. Fuck that guy. The anachronistic adventurer flies up on his winged horse Aragorn, who would one day join the defenders as Valkyrie's steed, and is like, Hey Goliath, can I help out? I've got a sword. Goliath is like, No way. Go away. I need to do this myself, and I can, because I am very large. And with that, the oversized avenger stomps off to face his fleet-footed foe. Never one to take fuck off for an answer, the Black Knight flies after him, intent on lending his unwanted assistance. When the wizard <laughs> sees Goliath fee-fi-foeing his way towards the celebrated clock tower, the sinister speedster decides to demonstrate how he earned his name. By running fast. The rapid reprobate whizzes as fast as he can whiz, encircling his colossal counterpart. Oh no! I mean... Running around a guy in a circle might not seem like a super big deal, but super speed, like magnetism or magic hammers, can do pretty much whatever. Sure enough, the high-speed cyclone formed by the wizard's fast running creates an implosion that appears to destroy Goliath. Oh no! Now the Avengers will only win three to one! Bummer. Oh, and it's too bad that Clint's dead. The wizard begins to celebrate his apparent victory. 
but the Black Knight sneaks up behind him and whacks him with his fancy sword. Immediately, Goliath pops up and is like, What the fuck, dude? I thought I told you to go away. I pretend imploded. I shrunk down at the last minute so I could sucker punch this dude, but now you fucked everything up. And indeed, the Black Knight has fucked everything up. Clint has barely finished his tirade when the Grandmaster's giant blue head appears out of nowhere and is like, Oh, what a shame. Looks like you guys cheated by having some outsider interfere in your match. And just when things were going so well for you. Looks like the results of this whole contest are thrown out and we'll have to start over. Guess that means we're heading back to the future. And I don't mean the delightful 1985 movie. Unless maybe one of Kang's alter egos is Marty McFly? I'm nigh omniscient and even I can't keep track of that guy's continuity. Well, off we go. And with that, the omnipotent inveterate gambler transports the Avengers and the Squadron Sinister to Kang's throne room in the 41st century. A confused Black Knight is left alone with what must be the familiar feeling that he fucked up real bad. The puzzled paladin appeals to the heavens and bellows solemnly, What happened? And there you have the debut of Nighthawk. Pretty good. It was nice to see some Salbusema art. It's been a little while, and uh, I like the way that guy draws stuff. One of the fun little touches that he threw in is at the beginning when Kang's eating his meal and throws all the food on the ground. He designed special futuristic eating utensils. And I thought that was a really nice touch that he didn't have to do, but was pretty fun. And there's a bunch of stuff like that in there. The issue is pretty dense with action and with exposition in a typical Roy Thomas fashion, but it didn't really get bogged down the way that can sometimes happen with Roy Thomas's stuff, for me at least. There's a bunch of fun, goofy, nonsensical, pseudoscientific Silver Age comic book nonsense, and I really dug that. And given that the premise for the villains was really obviously that they were ripoffs of the Justice League, I think they were handled in a pretty imaginative way. Hyperion's origin story in specific was pretty cool. Also, as I mentioned in that synopsis, Captain America's interest in the Statue of Liberty really does border on lascivious. I want to read you a little snippet of the captioning from that page. Two striking symbols of freedom face each other, the unseen bond between them throbbing like a living thing. I don't think it was necessarily the author's intent, but I also don't think I have ever seen the word throbbing used outside of an erotic context. So, huh. I mean, it's a good-looking statue. I get it. Now, as for Nighthawk, I honestly thought he was pretty great in this. I think it's interesting that both he and Moon Knight gave away their secret identities to their enemies almost immediately in both of their first appearances. But I gotta say, Nighthawk works a lot better as a villain, and specifically works pretty great as a parody of Batman, and I wish he was used that way more often. Maybe even as a hero he could be used as a parody of Batman in a way that works a little bit better for me than the way he is usually written as kind of a everyman, millionaire, bumbling hero who doesn't get the respect that he feels he deserves. I feel like he's a lot more fun as kind of a scenery-chewing, overly dramatic character. And we see it work here pretty well as a villain, and I think it could work pretty well for him as a hero, as long as the comic knows that he's being overdramatic, but Kyle's not in on the joke. Also, all things considered, he's pretty damn competent in this issue. I mean, he fucks up at the end, but he's really beaten the crap out of Captain America, who feels like he's physically outmatched. Which, I mean, Kyle does have the astounding power of the strength of a guy with another guy with him. Not that he would have another guy with him, because, as Nighthawk states in this issue, My friends would call me Nighthawk. 
if I had any friends. Pretty great. Also, the name The Wizard cracks me up every time I see it. And fuck the Black Knight. And there you have the premiere of our second Defender After Dark. And there you have two pretty great debuts of some nocturnal heroes. But you know what? I think that the greatest heroes out there don't wear capes. I'm talking about firefighters and teachers and Aqualad and our final Defender After Dark. Okay, I guess sometimes she does technically wear a cape, but that's just because it's part of her nighttime work clothes. And not in the same way that Moon Knight or Nighthawk's costumes are part of their nighttime work clothes. Look, I'm talking about Night Nurse. Night Nurse number one, November 1972. The Making of a Nurse. Written by Gene Thomas, drotted by Winslow Mortimer, inked by Winslow Mortimer, and edited by Roy Thomas. Defender After Dark Debuting Night Nurse Linda Carter, no relation, is about to graduate from nursing school. Or is she? It seems that if she does, she will be sacrificing a relationship with a man who could be the love of her life. What's a young lady to do? Well, if the young lady in question is Linda Carter, no relation, what she does is stare off into the middle distance and ponder the events of the past three years that led her to this crossroads. Three years ago, Linda was living in upstate New York and decided she wanted to be a nurse. Her dad was a doctor who was super supportive, and her parents were really proud of her, so she went off to attend nursing school at a big hospital in New York called Metro General. A few blocks away from Metro General, another young woman was getting ready to start her nurse training. Georgia Jenkins grew up in the economically depressed, predominantly black neighborhood that surrounded the hospital. Everyone in her community was super supportive of her interest in nursing and wished her well. In a wealthy Midwestern suburb, a red-haired young lady named Christine Palmer also had aspirations of nursedom. The only problem was, her dad was a rich jerk, who I guess hated nurses or something. He told her that if she went to nurse school, he never wanted to see her again. Well, Mr. Palmer's bizarre and arbitrary threat backfired, because off to nursing school Christine went. Christine, Georgia, and Linda were assigned to be roommates. That didn't go so great at first. Georgia didn't like the way Linda politely said hello. Christine didn't like the way Georgia didn't like the way Linda said hello, and also didn't like the way Linda said hello. And Linda didn't like being disliked. Within the first few minutes, the three women reached a tacit understanding that they would quietly hate each other throughout the duration of their education. They began to attend classes, which were difficult but rewarding. They learned to read x-rays, use a tongue depressor, do autopsies, make prescription drugs, and be nice to patients. Throughout their scholastic tribulations, the three roommates continued to bicker, due largely to their differences in background, race, and hair color. Also, Linda kept being nice, which seemed to infuriate Christine and Georgia for some reason. They spent a great deal of their time hanging out in their room and sassing each other while wearing negligee. One day there was a big fire, and the student nurses were pressed into duty to treat burn victims. After treating the wounds of a child who reminded her of her younger brother, Tag, Linda was overcome with homesickness and ran to a supply closet to cry about it. Christine and Georgia went looking for her and were startled to see her emotional display. After some initial light sassing, the trio of prospective nurses all started crying about the fact that they missed their families and decided to be best friends. Hooray! After their shared cry session, the roommates went from hanging around their room in their lingerie and sniping at each other to hanging around their room in their lingerie and being nice to each other. 
the number of pillow fights likely remained a constant. There was a mean nurse that they all disliked, named Miss Brundage. One day, Brundage ordered Linda to be nice to a young rich guy named Marshall Michaels, who was recovering from appendicitis. The hospital's board of trustees was hoping that the alliteratively named convalescent would donate a new wing to the facility, so they wanted to make sure he received around-the-clock care for his wounds. Weird. It's almost as though the wealthy received better health care. Huh. When Linda arrived at Marshall's room, the abdominally compromised tycoon was a real asshole to her. Then he noticed she was pretty and started to be nicer. He also used the word bankrupts as a plural noun to describe poor people, which I don't think is a real thing, but totally works as a thing that a fictional rich guy might do. Michaels was alternately dismissive, condescending, and demanding. Naturally, Linda was smitten. Boo! When Marshall Michaels was dismissed from the hospital later that week, he invited Linda on a date and took her out on his fancy yacht. He used all the boat words that he knew in a single sentence, so Linda would know what a good little sailor he was. After a whirlwind romance, Marshall invited Linda to a fancy French restaurant and popped the big question. Linda, will you do me the great honor of giving up your career in nursing? And I guess marrying me too, but mostly abandon your dreams of being a nurse. Today. What a piece of shit. Linda, you would be so much better off with a nice bankrupt. Linda responded that she was about to graduate from nursing school in a few days and would like some time to think about this flattering but unreasonable and insulting proposal. Marshall was like, nope, you can have until tomorrow night. I have to go on a business trip to do some finance and stuff, and if you don't skip the graduation and go with me, we are through. Now let's get some dessert. Wow, what a catch. Seems like Linda has a pretty tough decision on her hands. But Linda isn't the only lady lucky enough to have a wealthy man in her life demanding that she abandon her aspirations of a career. Remember Christine's asshole father, who told her that if she went to nurse school she was out of the family? Well, he's back. He tells his daughter that he was wrong and that he is proud of her for following through on her educational goals. Ah, good for him. Maybe I was too quick to judge Mr. Palmer. He goes on to say that if after she graduates, she quits nursing and gives up on the idea of having a job, he will buy her something fancy. Damn it, Mr. Palmer! Man, after seeing the strange controlling way Mr. Palmer treats his daughter... I wouldn't be too surprised if we found out that his first name was Leland. Georgia was having a pretty different day off than her two white roommates. She spent it by dispensing free medical care to the people in her old neighborhood, a few blocks from the hospital. It seems that there had been a heat wave going on, and tensions had been pretty high, which had resulted in some injuries. As she treated the wounds of a young man who had been fighting in the streets, she reprimanded him for hanging out with the local no-goods. Hey, Georgia! Be fair, a lot of those so-called no-goods are just bankrupts who are frustrated at their lack of opportunities. After a tiring but fulfilling day of community volunteering, Georgia returned to her room at the hospital for some well-earned rest. Unfortunately, Georgia's respite was a brief one. There was a power outage that affected most of the city. The hospital had a backup generator, so there was only a brief disruption of service, but the rest of the neighborhood was not so lucky. The hospital is owned by the same business that owns the power company, so the local citizens resented the fact that they had lost the electricity while Metro General had not. The frustration was compounded by the fact that during the heat wave, while power usage had spiked, the less affluent neighborhoods had been disproportionately hit with brownouts while electrical services had been maintained in wealthier neighborhoods. The hospital staff was concerned that a riot might be imminent. The nurses in training got pressed into service to help deal with the deluge of injuries brought on by the heat and the blackout. Georgia had just finished treating an elderly man with a broken arm that lived in the same building as her family when she saw her brother Ben in the hallway dressed as an orderly. She was startled by this surprise encounter for a couple of reasons. A. She hadn't seen Ben in over a year and was under the impression that he was out of work. And two... Ben was accompanied by a rude bearded young man who she recognized as Rocky, one of the more volatile no-goods from her neighborhood. 
Ben explained that he and Rocky just got orderly jobs, and he hadn't told her because he wanted it to be a surprise. He went on to say that he'd love to stay and chat, but they needed to get their bags of laundry down to the basement before they got into any trouble. Something about Ben's story didn't quite sit right with Georgia, but she was happy for her brother and continued on her rounds. It wasn't until she ran into Christine and Linda that the inconsistency in Ben's story fell into place. The laundry room was closed right now. In fact, the only facility in the basement that was still open was the emergency power generator that was keeping the hospital running. Georgia shared her fears with her roommates that her brother Ben had gone full no good and that he and Rocky planned on sabotaging the generator. The three nurses-to-be rushed downstairs to the basement to intervene. When they arrived, they found that Georgia's worst fears were confirmed. Over Ben's protestations, Rocky had shot and killed a guard who tried to stop the young men from planting dynamite all over the generator. Ben had wanted to use the explosives to hold the hospital hostage unless the city turned the power back on in his neighborhood, but Rocky had other plans. Nonsensical, evil plans. The bearded baddie held the three ladies at gunpoint and speculated out loud that someone would pay him an awful lot of money if he blew up the generator. Wait, they would? Who? Rocky said that maybe the trustees of the hospital, or the mayor would. He's a little fuzzy on the details, but the important thing is that blowing up a hospital with dynamite is his ticket to Easy Street. Ben wasn't crazy about that plan, so he tackled Rocky and punched him a bunch. Hooray! But then Rocky shot him. Not so hooray. As Georgia rushed to treat her brother's wound, Rocky tried to flee with the detonator, but Linda tripped the nonsensically nefarious no-good and grabbed the detonator from him. Rocky threatened to shoot her and regain the device, but the cops busted in and shot Rocky instead. As he was carted off to the operating room, Ben apologized to his tearful sister for his role in the fiasco. Turns out, he was just getting out of a year-long stint in prison when he saw a bunch of people from his neighborhood who were suffering from injuries they had obtained during the blackout. When Rocky told him that he had a plan to get the electricity turned back on, he decided to go along with it. Christine said that she would talk to her shitty controlling dad about getting Ben a lawyer. The three soon-to-be nurses are about to head back to their room when shitty old Marshall Michaels showed up and was like, So Linda, I get that you were just in a death-defying, harrowing ordeal, but shut up about that. I want to go to Brazil tomorrow for business, and I guess we can get married while we're there. So let's go. And that brings us back to the opening page of the book, where Linda is trying to make a decision about her future. Linda's like, wow, that is so romantic, the way you want to shoehorn our wedding into a business trip and all, but graduation from nursing school is tomorrow, so maybe we could wait a couple of days? The affluent asshole replies, nope, don't wanna. Plus, when we get married, you aren't allowed to be a nurse, or have any job for that matter. Now, let's go. Linda hesitates, but eventually, tearfully declines Marshall's petulant demand. Hooray! The three nurses-to-be head up to their room to probably change into their lingerie and have one last sad but hopeful pillow fight before they graduate from nursing school the next day. And there you have the debut of Night Nurse. Linda Carter technically debuted back in 1961 in a series that Stan Lee wrote that was a humor title called Linda Carter, Student Nurse. But both Georgia and Christine have also been known as Night Nurse, so I think this counts as the Night Nurse debut. And it was pretty fun. Winslow Mortimer is probably best known as a Superman artist, but I thought he actually did a really nice job on this for the most part. If I was just judging his work from this comic, I would suspect that he had a background in romance comics, which I don't think he did. Linda doesn't come across as particularly strong in this issue. Seems like her signature move is to go and cry and be indecisive about things, but she does eventually turn down the obvious asshole in this uh marshall michaels who man fuck that guy and fuck mr palmer too 
I kind of wish those characters had maybe been fleshed out a little bit more so that we could see there being some reason why Linda and Christine had difficulty making their decisions. I mean, with Christine, you get it. That's the guy's dad. But Marshall was such an asshole right from the beginning. It made me really wonder why Linda was with him in the first place and needed to make the decision as to whether or not she was going to marry him or graduate from nursing school the next day. But the subplot about George's brother I thought was pretty interesting, and I really like Georgia and Christina's characters. They seem pretty cool. The whole thing about the city directing brownouts towards underprivileged areas of the city while more affluent neighborhoods had uninterrupted electrical service I thought was really interesting and made for kind of a cool background to place this story against. So... Overall, not bad. A little bit heavy-handed, but its heart was in the right place, and I'll give it points for that. It also did crack me up what an asshole Marshall was. Especially when he says stuff like, when Linda tells him he needs to rest and he replies, Bankrupts need rest. I need work. Or when he's showing off all the boat-related words that he knows and says, Well, ship ahoy, matey, or you'll swab the decks. That doesn't mean anything. But it does sound like the sort of thing that a rich idiot might say if he was on a boat. So, nice job. It did seem as though there may have been a bit of a disconnect between the middle-aged male artist and the young woman writer that whenever the three ladies were hanging out in their room, they would be wearing essentially negligees. I don't know that that was necessarily what Jean Thomas's intent for their female bonding was, but... Fuck, maybe it was. I don't know. Anyway, that was Night Nurse, our final Defender After Dark. Now let's take a quick look at some of the minutiae from these issues so that we can determine a winner, which is the thing I just decided this episode should have. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Okay, so for our first category, let's look at which character had the most iconic dialogue in their debut. For Moon Knight, we got a couple of options. There's... Hello, Russell. They told me to announce myself as the Moon Knight. Pretty stupid name, but it'll do as far as you're concerned. Pretty decent. Declarative. Points out that his name is stupid. But I think I'm going to go with, Let's say I'm a working man, Russell. Out to do my job and collect my bread. Because I think that more sums up who he is, at least at that time. He was a gun for hire, a mercenary. And that statement kind of sums up that aspect of his character. Moving along to Nighthawk, we again have a couple to choose from. There's his introductory dialogue from issue number 69, nice, where he says, Those who speak of me in the dead of night call me Nighthawk. It's silly and it's unnecessarily dramatic, and I kind of love it for that. And I think those aspects of Nighthawk's character are what make him really fun in this book. But what I think is maybe even better and more indicative of his character is when he tells Captain America, In case you've forgotten, my friends would call me Nighthawk, if I had any friends. Which I think is supposed to be him saying that he's like, a loner who doesn't need anybody and is kind of a bad guy. But I think is maybe more telling than he realizes that he's just an asshole and nobody likes him. And that's a pretty decent way to sum up the once and future Nighthawk. For Night Nurse, there's a couple of ways to go with this one. I think one would be going with Linda's opening statement, which is kind of the thesis for this comic book, which is, I've got to choose choose between the man I love and becoming a nurse. Because unfortunately, at least in this issue, Linda's character is probably most defined by her tearful indecision. I mean, she does make the decision at the end to become a nurse, but most of the story is her struggling with that back and forth. 
But I much prefer a line that Georgia has back when the ladies were bickering in their 90s instead of bonding in their 90s. An alarm goes off and Georgia says, "Uh Uh-oh, that's a general emergency call. Let's move it. We have a date in the emergency room. And I think that much better sums up the spirit of the series as being the story of three young women who are doing a difficult and important job under great stress. So I'm going to go with that one for Night Nurse. Now, of these choices, I gotta say, I think Nighthawk being overly dramatic about the fact that nobody likes him is going to be my choice for most iconic dialogue. So Nighthawk is on the board with the early lead. Our next category is going to be Most Fun Name of an Ancillary Character. From Werewolf by Night number 32, wow, we have an embarrassment of riches in this category. There is, of course, Jack Russell, the werewolf. There is Topaz, the werewolf's girlfriend. There is Lissa, his sister. Buck, his best friend. Although Buck's a kind of fun name. That one doesn't really move the needle on this one. And there is Buttons, the little girl, who I love to believe is named after Button Gwinnett, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. From Avengers 70, we have Kang's dead girlfriend, Ravona. That's a pretty fun name. It's like Ramona, but you turned the M upside down and I guess cut half of it off. But mostly in that one, we've got the Wizard. <laughs> the Wizard. Such a dumb name. And from Night Nurse, we have Linda Carter, which is great because that is the name of the actress who played Wonder Woman. So that's fun. And we also have Linda's little brother, Tag. Tag Carter is a pretty damn good name. But I don't think either of those really stacks up to the wizard or buttons. So, oof. It's a tough decision. I think I'm actually going to go with Buttons, just because the name Wizard had already been used by a Golden Age hero who had an all-yellow outfit who got his powers by injecting himself with mongoose blood. So because of that, Buttons, and therefore Moon Knight's debut, is the winner, and Moon Knight is on the board. The score is now Moon Knight 1, Nighthawk 1, Night Nurse 0. Will she be able to make up ground in the next category? Let's find out. To round out the competition, we have two of our more traditional minutiae categories, starting with Sartorially Speaking. Which of these issues had the best fashion? Let's take a look. In Werewolf by Night number 32, I think the best fashion is on page three. There is a guy wearing a lime green golf shirt with wide lapels and a matching lime green tam. I think you call that kind of hat. It's like a beret with a little fluffy knobbin bit at the top. He's saying, I'm hip, but what's that other dude like? Lon Chaney in a mink? Anyway, I think he's dressed pretty neat. Over in Avengers number 70, we have, of course, Nighthawk's original uniform, which has a icon of a hawk where the wings stretch out all the way to the arms of the outfit and then become his fists. That's pretty neat. He's also got that ridiculous bird beak, which I love. And as I mentioned, Hyperion is wearing what really looks like a riveted gold diaper, which... I don't want to know what's going on with that thing, but your eye is certainly drawn to it. So I think a Hyperion's gold diaper is going to be the choice here. And in Night Nurse number one, man, there's some good shit to choose from. Uh, All of the ladies wear pretty cool outfits at one point or another. I think Christine Palmer has like probably the most elaborate dress on at one point, which has kind of elaborate orange squiggles on the trim and then is lime green and it's just weird looking and pretty cool i'm a sucker for a paisley robe and uh marshall michaels despite the fact that he is a total piece of shit 
is rocking a pretty sweet orange paisley robe. But when Georgia goes home and does her community nursing, she has as part of her nurse uniform, which I mentioned in the introduction of the issue, a cape, which is a pretty rad, purely fashion cape that is black and has red lining. And damn, it is a good look. And it is the winner of this category. It goes with Georgia and her night nursing outfit, which includes a cape. Good stuff. Which brings us to our fourth and final category. We are all tied up at one point apiece, so it does all come down to this final round. Pretty exciting. And the final minutia category is a classic. It all comes down to which issue had the best sound effect. For Werewolf by Night number 32, there are a lot to choose from. There is a silver-toed boot hitting a werewolf in the face making the noise. Scupped. There is another silver-toed kick to a werewolf's face making the noise. Bwok. There is a silver-toed kick to the back of a werewolf's head making the noise. Swunk. And there is a werewolf pulling a silver crescent dart out of his arm, which makes the noise ween. And just because that noise is so inexplicable, that is the one I'm going to go with. Over in Avengers number 70, we have a Green Lantern ripoff making a giant hammer smash the ground, which makes the noise shroom. Interesting. But not quite the choice, because the obvious choice in this one is that same Green Lantern ripoff, Dr. Spectrum, blasting Iron Man with an energy beam that makes the noise frap. And frap is the winner because that is what we in New England call a milkshake because that is how we pronounce the setting on the blender, F-R-A-P-P-E. I believe it is supposed to be pronounced frappe, but everyone calls it frap, and that's why you call milkshakes fraps in New England. Unless you're in Rhode Island, in which case I believe they are called cabinets, because Rhode Island is fucking weird. And unfortunately, Night Nurse has only a few fairly standard sound effects. A phone makes the noise ring, and a gun makes the noise bam and then blam. Which means that the winner is frap from the Avengers number 70, and against all odds and all common sense, Nighthawk has won something. With a final tally of one point for Night Nurse, one point for Moon Knight, and two points for Nighthawk, Nighthawk is our Defender After Dark. I got to admit, I was kind of pulling for Night Nurse, but the sound effects just weren't there to back it up. Well, that was actually a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us on this very special episode of Tighten Up the Defense, where we talked about Defenders after dark. What, no saxophone solo there? Well, I guess the saxophone player has gone home, which means that the show is over. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, on iTunes, or whatever iTunes turns into, or Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts and are listening to this podcast right now. If you feel like going into whatever app it is that you are listening to this on and leaving us a five-star review, I think that would be a really nice thing to do. It helps people find the show, which is something that I'm keen on them doing. If you would like to contribute to us monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland.com. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material, including the monthly show, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. The Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with Lisa. Corey should be back from Stalagmite Central by next week, so we will be covering a Teen Titans issue, which means that I will only have to write one synopsis. Hooray! So I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to talking with Corey again. Thanks for bearing with me while I do weird experimental shit like this. See you next week!
Goodbye.